and welcome to Retelling. Retelling is a podcast that explores the power of story and its role in shaping culture. Our particular interest is in science fiction and fantasy stories that are told and retold across a variety of media. In this episode, Jim and I will be discussing rags to riches stories, most commonly associated with the story of Cinderella. Here, we'll examine common threads of the Rags to Riches story in Ernest Cline's book, Ready Player One, and Disney's film, Brave. In the process, we'll bring Bruno Bettelheim into the conversation and recognize the importance of magic in these stories. Be aware that there may be some spoilers. We hope that you enjoy the conversation. And now, the retelling. So, Becky, what are you excited about this week? Something you read, watched, maybe something we're going to do in this episode? Well, I really enjoyed watching Brave in preparation for this episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I love Disney films, especially ones where the heroines have great big hair. Okay. Um, which I feel like <laughs> Brave really does well. Mm-hmm. Um, Pixar continually amazes me with what they are able to ma- animate. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, I am actually really enjoying watching Parks and Recreation, okay. <laughs> which is um, a TV show uh, that almost all my friends have all seen and watched when it was actually, mm-hmm. you know, on television. And now right. I'm watching it on Netflix okay. and they've been telling me for years and they were right. Mm-hmm. So I can say this publicly. They were right. Um, <laughs> I love Leslie Nope, and I love that show. <laughs> it's a great show. Yeah, I watched it was on TV, and I recently have been rewatching several episodes. So, yeah, it's nice having uh, all this streaming media at our fingertips. We can rewatch these different shows and do different things. So, that's yes. pretty exciting. Um, so, for me, I guess um, I'm really excited. The fall TV season has started. So, uh, new Doctor Who season eleven. Oh, that's uh, exciting! It's exciting with the first female Doctor. So. That's really exciting, and I'm sure we'll be touching on some Doctor Who in some future episodes. Yes. Um, but the typical fall, ep- fall season for me, besides sitcoms, which are always great, um, and uh, The Good Place, which I don't think you're caught up on yet, are you? I'm not caught up on, so no spoilers, but I no love that spoilers. show. <laughs> um, so uh, great, great episode, new episode, uh, yeah, or coming up soon. Um, but um, all of the um, uh, fall superhero shows, so all the stuff on... Uh, CW, like the Flash and um, uh, sci-fi type shows that are on, you know, this particular Supergirl, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, all the X-Men shows that are out there now and, and they're playing. So, yeah, a lot of different stuff like that. And it's um, really, as I said, this the past several years have just been uh, for those of us that are geeks and nerds, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. comic book freaks. This is like. Like, great. You know, we can read about them, we can watch the movies, and now we can watch them on TV. So, very excited about um, the fall episodes. But then, the, something else I've been excited about recently was just a little discovery, and it's right up your alley. And I think you probably already know about it, um, hmm. uh, which is um, I was reading recently. Um, I don't even know how I got onto it, but I was reading about the, um, um, the Aspen Forest in Utah, hmm. um, uh, Pando. So, what was fascinating about it, I must have been watching something that had trivia or whatever else that Panda, which is the name of that Aspen forest, mm-hmm. um, shares one root system. So it's one organism. Oh, how cool. And it's, and it's male. So it's this, 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 uh, these, this Aspen forest, it's 106 acres. Um, it is um, 6 million kilograms 
I think is what they said in size, mm-hmm. like 6,600 short tons. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's over 80,000 years old. So it is the heaviest and oldest organism uh, on the planet. Uh, that's amazing. So, I, don't know, I don't know if anybody can claim the on the planet thing since there are still things we haven't explored, mm-hmm. but that's really cool. True, true. Like, like, the, like the dragon that's crawled up at the center of the core of the earth. We haven't been able to measure. Well, precisely. I mean, that, that, yeah. that, that guy probably weighs quite a bit. Right. But I think that's a great example of how cool plants are. They are. It is. And I'm just, so I was reading this. And then the sad part is, is that it, it's over the past 30 to 40 years due to human intervention, um, it, it's, it's not been growing. So it's in, in, in essence dying right now, uh, which is extremely sad to me um, that here's yeah. this massive organism. And it's the idea that here's an organism. It's unbelievable. We should be caring for it yet. Um, you know, it's uh, cattle were ranging on it, eating the saplings, mule deer. You know, I mean, we're we're not really maintaining it as much as we're taking advantage of the space. So um, I don't know. That was just pretty fascinating for me this week and, and kind of sad, kind of exciting um, mm-hmm. to hear about that. But it reminded me of going back to Philip K. Dick's The Wub, right? The misunderstood mm-hmm. creature, you know, yeah. where we're like, uh, pfft, it's nothing. It's just a bunch of trees. But it's like, no, it's not. It's actually one big hundred and some acre organism with shared you know same dna and the same root yeah. system so i don't know that got me kind of excited just that those moments when you realize that the that there's things out there that you didn't even know about that the world's bigger than what you thought which is why we love fantasy and science fiction and all kinds of stories like that yeah absolutely and you know a tree system like that could easily factor into uh one of the fairy tales that we're going to talk about as a character it's true you know and then we so when we think about cinderella you know, uh, which is that Cinderella, not just as the story, but the Cinderella trope, right? That, right? That's part of all those things. This rag to riches story. It's one of the oldest and most popular retellings of human culture. So that's kind of fascinating mm-hmm. um, that it was originally a fairy tale from China, which, you know, in my research was find that out. And I think, you know, the, the allusion to that was also you see it once you know that because of the emphasis on the beauty and daintiness of the foot, which is a whole other topic True. to get yes. into. Uh, mm-hmm. the cruelty that, that came out of that sort of um, type of culture. But, but the idea that the, that the foot is what's actually, you know, acknowledged throughout the, the story, uh, but it's taken on so many different variations and it's retelling. So every culture contains some version of the story. So um, there's a Scottish version. So, you know, here's brave was sort of Scottish, right? And uh, mm-hmm. so here's a Scottish version of this called uh, ration Cody, which involved a wish granting calf. Um, which would be barely recognizable to most listeners, right? That whole story mm-hmm. about a wish-giving calf. Um, and, uh, and we don't really get into that too much, but it's really this really, even like someone finds out the calf gives wishes and so they destroy it so that, so that the character can't grant wishes, but even its bones and ashes still grant her wishes. It's kind of really a fascinating version of the story. Huh. Um, so even in death, you know, there's still this power uh, behind the, the wish-granting calf. Um, but then there's two others, you know, Brothers Grimm and Peralt. Um, mm-hmm. And the Peralt one is where the Disney version is derived um, and probably the most recognizable. So we're, we're going to talk a little bit about that Rag to Riches and Cinderella, but then also talk about how it's been represented in some more modern type stories, such as uh, Ready Player One, the novel, mm-hmm. a little bit into the film and the novel kind of mashed together. Um, so nothing 
Sorry about sorry out there to the purists, you know, but we're <laughs> when there's a film version and you've also read the books, it's kind of hard because you're different audience members. Some have seen the movie and some will read the books and some will have done both. So you're trying to talk about it. You know what I mean? In such a well, I think, way. I think we range um, we range around enough that we probably aren't going to appeal to purists most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, that's just because we're, we're interested in the retelling of a story in different forms. So it comes with the territory. Right. And then we want to be able to shape how we're looking at that though, through a particular lens. Right. Um, So, you know, we have some different articles, right? Some stuff we're going to look at today. We're we're definitely going to look at some stuff. Um, (laughs) And (laughs) this was my first time reading Bruno Bettelheim. Okay. Um, But you know, he's a scholar from the 1970s, and I'm sure he wrote after the 1970s. But um, he has a book called The Uses of Enchantment, uh-huh. which we're going to use as part of our lens today. And um, one thing that really struck me when I was reading this article, um, he is focusing on the child. Right. Talking about the child's need for fairy tales. Mm-hmm. Um, he draws the designation between myths and fairy tales that myths are kind of um very black and white they tell you how to live your life what's wrong and what's right whereas a fairy tale um leaves it more open-ended it enables you to picture yourself uh in the role of the hero Mm -hmm. um and then kind of imagine yourself doing what the hero has to do and figuring out how that could apply to your own life right so it gives children a way um to imagine themselves into different scenarios when they're trying to figure out big questions like who they are and where they belong and, you know, what the world is all about. But the myth doesn't typically have sort of an ending, right? I mean, the myth is more this idea of, you know, just like you said, explaining how does the world work, right? How's my, how do I understand the world should work? What's, what's the stories that help me to shape that? And then those stories shift and change over time. Whereas a fairy tale usually has that, once upon a time and then happily ever after sort of concept to it. Everything works out. Okay. In the end. Yeah. Right. And we talked about that last, you know, in the previous podcast about the eucatastrophe, right? The idea Mm -hmm. that even though things were bad, the bad ended up in something good, right. That happened, even though somebody lost the overall concept of winning um, was there as well. Exactly. And part of that is because one of the roles of the story, uh, fairy tale is, to enable the person who is reading or watching it to identify with the hero as the hero tries to figure out who they really are, mm-hmm. you know, what their true identity is. And mm-hmm. that's something that everybody can relate to. And frankly, when I was reading through this, um, it really, you know, of course it still resonates with me. I mean, I'm also still watching Disney movies, right? As am um, I. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's not just it's not just for the child because when you grow up, the reality is your child doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. You are still a child. You're just also an adult. Correct. And um, so the ability to be able to kind of play with a story and ask the what ifs of like, you know what? I don't really feel like myself so much anymore. Mm-hmm. And then watch that story and watch the process that somebody else goes through to kind of figure out who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, is a useful imaginative process. So Bettelheim talks about that. Um, And there were several points, you know, as I was reading through where I said, okay, well, this applies just as much to adults as it does to children. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
I'll talk a little bit later about how that applies to Brave. Okay. Okay. <laughs> when we get into that. And, and I have yeah. to tell you, every time, I know you say Bettelheim, which is the right way to pronounce it. I want to pronounce it Bettelheim. And I want to say it three times in hopes that he shows up. Oh. Um, <laughs> it's like Bettelheim, Bettelheim, Bettelheim. And then it's like he's here. And then we can have this discussion about fairy tales. Um, but no, you know, it's, yeah. It's, that would uh, be really helpful. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> talk about a fairy tale right Beetlejuice is a great fairy tale we'll, we'll talk about that later someday. okay okay uh so so any other types of lenses that we're going to use to shape this i mean uh, well we certainly can bring world building back into it as well mm-hmm. um and the role of uh, magic is going to play a really important role in our discussion of mm-hmm. these rags to riches fairy tale stories because right. um you know, and we'll discuss a, several different stories in which magic uh, appears in a very different way mm-hmm. and also plays a very different role. But I think its presence is important. Um, one of Bettelheim's main points is that our rational, scientific, objective view of the world is incredibly important, particularly mm-hmm. as an adult. But you can't assume that that then will help you negotiate the rest of your life. You still need the emotional, intuitive, uh, unconscious right. part of yourself as well. Right. And magic as a trope in stories really, really plays to that need. Um, and that very real part of who we are as human beings. And I think magic takes many different forms. And we've talked, um, you and I've talked prior to, to today's podcast, but sure, that sure. idea of, um, you know, magic is sort of this uh, mystical power, you know what I mean, that comes from animals, from wands, from books, whatever, whatever the magic is, right, that, mm-hmm. bring, that brings about something that would be unobtainable otherwise. And, mm-hmm. you know, when we look at, um, and we talk about Ready Player One, the story in the, in the movie, um, the idea that technology is sort of the representation of magic and that mm-hmm. particular tale as well. And, and in many other science fiction stories that technology, especially technology we've not envisioned anymore, but in this particular case with Ready Player One, they enter into another realm, right? The virtual mm-hmm. world. And within the virtual world, the technology allows them to have powers and to be different types of people and to mm-hmm. perform um, things that would not happen in the mundane world. Yes. And it enables, um, it enables in part of the story a transformation Mm-hmm. even if it's not a permanent one, because, you know, ideally what will happen by the end of the story with the happy ending is that the hero or heroes will have figured out how to make the transformation that they want mm-hmm. uh, using the power within themselves. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes some type of magic is needed to kind of help them realize that, you know, for example, right. of course, in Disney's version of Cinderella, you have a fairy godmother who literally mm-hmm. gives her a new dress and, you know, the transportation that she needs in order to get to the ball. And in Brave, mm-hmm. you have the wisps leading right. her, you know, to the places that she needs to go in order to, to find the witch. Um, right. So, again, it's not, it's not something that the hero wouldn't be able to do by themselves. But they right. kind of need the aid of the magic um, almost as a way to kind of help them imagine themselves as a mm-hmm. different version of themselves. Right, right. The, 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 the best version of themselves that they, you know, could be mm-hmm. in a particular way. And then I think it's the, it's the idea that 
hopefully at the end we get into, as we mentioned, the catastrophe and Tolkien or the happy ending here with this is that they, they um, um, obtain that, right? They, they achieve whatever that might be, mm-hmm. whatever happy is, right? Or whatever the riches might be at the end of this. Uh, right, because story. rags to riches doesn't necessarily mean money. Um, no, which will no. become very apparent, you know, in the different stories that we talk about. Sometimes, sometimes class and socioeconomic um, factors are definitely part of it, but that's not. It's the idea of becoming rich in something. Right, rich in character, rich in family, rich in friends, rich in mm-hmm. love. I mean, there's other things that they can be rich in. Right. Um, at the end of some of these things, and then you know we've talked about different types of Cinderella stories, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the idea that there are lots of when you sit down and think about it. That whole idea of rags to riches, uh, transitioning from a have-not to a have, whatever mm-hmm. the have might be, um, is pretty prevalent in, in every story, whether it's directly or indirectly addressed. Sure. Uh, you know, the, the, even the hero's journey, most of the time the hero starts out as a nobody mm-hmm. and becomes a somebody because of the journey they were on. Right. Almost no one, unless they're a god, right, in a myth. Mm-hmm. Uh, starts their life identified as a hero, you have to go through some type of journey Mm -hmm. in order to be identified as one. Right. That's sort of revelation that you start out as nothing. um, And then whenever the time comes, you become something, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Of value, of worth um, seen by other people. I mean, we talked about magic, right? But there are Cinderella stories that fall into play like um, Joseph, right? The story of Joseph in Genesis. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, the um, sold into slavery, um, work for the Pharaoh, uh, you know, then ends up being falsely accused, ends up in prison, you know, becomes a dream interpreter, rises up out of prison. You know, mm-hmm. this whole going from nothing to something uh, in a particular story. And I think and I know that when you look at some stories, some people look at them as myth. And, you know, and when we study things in um, uh, seminary, right, that mm-hmm. from a seminary perspective, you study about the myth because the mythology doesn't mean not true. It just right. means a story that helps you to understand the world around you. So this, this idea that, um, so someone can look at something um, from a biblical story and say, well, that's historical. That's fine. Or it's a myth or it's not a fairy tale, but the magic, right? Like mm-hmm. where's the magic in that story? Right. I mean, we can clearly see it in as technology and science fiction, or we can clearly see it in fantasy or in Cinderella mm-hmm. as the magical world. Right. The move from the mundane to the um, uh, fantastical. Well, right. And in you know, in religious texts, it's usually the divine that's, you know, right. serves the role, the, the role of uh, magic in that case. You know, right. the the force that somehow helps the main character or characters realize that there's more to them than they have been able to tap into before. Right. And that they can't do it on their own. It's because of the presence of that right. super supernatural right, mm-hmm. support that comes out, which is, you can use those terms, the natural world, the supernatural. Sure, right? sure. You know, um, and then we can get into a big discussion on if it's a realm full of magical, isn't that the natural, right? Um, or if it's a world that's full of divine intervention, is that not the natural? So anyways, point being is that there's something other than the person, other mm-hmm. than the self, that is an enhancement to help them achieve whatever it is they're doing along the journey. Yeah. 
And we've talked about, um, we were going to mention some of the tropes that tend to show up in the stories, but I think we've kind of already done that. Yeah, we've done a little bit. I mean, the idea that in the Cinderella story in perspective, the idea of like death and mourning, you know, mm-hmm. the idea that she sleeps in the ashes, I think mm-hmm. is one thing that's there. And that gets transferred, coals, ashes, whatever, in different versions of the story. Mm-hmm. I really found it fascinating that uh, uh, Bethlehem mentioned the idea that the glass slipper represents lost innocence. Mm the fragility right of the slipper the true you know and that it gets lost and then but but that the the prince in cinderella carries the shoe right to try mm-hmm. to remove or try to return not remove, mm-hmm. but try to return and it's not broken it's not shattered right. um and other you know and uh, depending on the version the stepsisters try to assume innocence right by making the slipper fit them but right. they do it by means that are wrong i mean actually mutilate themselves in some stories um so that they can actually so they can achieve this um persona of innocence that's false um Mm -hmm. and i think that's sort of an interesting thing we talked about magic and benevolence you know the idea of godmother and tree and animals uh and the adversity that's that's faced you know i think bilhan talks a lot about that the death of mother the absence of father the evil stepmother the stepsisters family Rags, relationships yep, yeah yep. hard they... labors everything else yeah um and then i mentioned already the catastrophe again you know the idea that the evil stepmother and stepsisters are thwarted and there's a right. deliverance that happens by the prince and well and it's also one of your favorite words so <laughs> you catastrophe <laughs> <laughs> i can attest to that <laughs> <laughs> but it's so relevant and present. uh anyway so yeah so those are some of the theoretical lenses or some of the tropes and things like that so um <laughs> So we're talking about our text of focus today. Cinderella is sort of this overarching, right, story that's being retold through things like Ready Player One and Brave, you know. Right. And And, I mean, of course, through Disney's Cinderella as well. But that one's just obvious. (laughs) It's obvious. But there are lots of different things that can be brought into this conversation of the Cinderella story. You and I have discussed Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, here's the Charlie who's with his family and has nothing, right? They're all living under one roof. They're barely getting by. Mm-hmm. And, and his one chance to kind of not only change his own life and his own identity, but also that of his whole family, you know, mm-hmm. is to get the golden ticket. Mm-hmm. And prove himself worthy mm-hmm. to inherit, right? Uh, the, chocolate, right. the chocolate empire. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So that's one. Um, but you know, and, and so the Cinderella Brie, the Charlie Chocolate Factory, um, George MacDonald, who I've read a lot of George MacDonald, um, Scottish author. It's, he's the author that wrote a lot of the original fantasies like Lilith. Um, he wrote, um, all these different stories that really were these, um, he wrote, he actually wrote a story called fantasies. Mm -hmm. Um, but he, he wrote the, the um, light princess and you might've seen an animated version of that or heard about that before, Mm. um, that were out there. He introduced goblins and things, but those were those were the stories that Tolkien and Lewis grew up on. Mm. Who we mentioned already was George MacDonald, but George MacDonald um, basically wrote a lot of different stories about the uneducated, poor um, Scotsman or, or woman who would then travel to another world, London, and be faced with the need to prove themselves, to become educated, to become mm-hmm. you know. And the magic for him a lot of times um, in that was really the educational system. The idea that becoming yeah. an educated person was magic that transformed the person to go from being a commoner to being somebody more noble. Uh, and, and that's another piece of magic that we don't 
typically um, consider or think about um, in our day and age. We so. certainly don't think of it think of it as magic. No, but we. St- I think no. especially, and I may be ba- uh, biased here speaking as an American studies person, but um, I think that idea particularly appeals to um, Americans. You know, given our our view of ourselves as a nation of immigrants, right? You know, and- who can who can find a better life. Right. And I think that that's a great segue into Ready Player One, at least the book, mm-hmm. uh, where education played a huge part um, because they went to school in virtual worlds. Um, and to get to be able to get into school, you had to have the rig, the gear, right, mm-hmm. the, the, mm-hmm. the computer, the virtual reality equipment, the things that you needed to be able to access it. And if you didn't have all the best, the modern sort of um, suits and gloves and things that allowed you to really immerse yourself into it, your educational experience was limited in some way. Now that doesn't, the school doesn't come out so much in the movie as much as it does in the book. Um, And I think that's sort of an interesting thing that I've sort of pushed aside to really go right into the Easter egg hunt. Right. Uh, It's probably not as compelling as a storyline. No, no, but as a, but as a book, it was very compelling, very interesting. It had a lot of social com- more social commentary that comes out of the film itself. The film itself, as you and I have talked, really does parallel Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Right. Someone who's growing up, uh, living with his sister, living in um, the stacks, which are these trailers stacked on top of one another to mm-hmm. form high-rise trailers, which is bizarre and just such an imaginative way to approach that really aspect is. of poverty. Yeah. Um, but it was to have a better life meant to become somebody in the other world because you can never become anyone in the mundane, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, but then whenever this comes about that the person who created the world very much like um, Willy Wonka um, says, Hey, I've passed on, but I'm going to leave my world in the capable hands of someone who will love it and care for it as much as I do. Mm-hmm. So it's this, it's this race between um, the character and ready player one, right. Who's Wade who's mm-hmm. trying to, um, um, you know, uh, who's tr- Wade Watts, who's trying to beat the corporations who are trying to take the world for themselves to make more money and to have control. Um, and the people then he surrounds himself eventually to be able to, uh, to accomplish those things. You know what? This is also, I think we've talked about this before, but this is also reminding me of kind of a David and Goliath sort of situation. Oh, yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that factors into what we're talking about today as well, because again, if you're, if you're an individual and in the case of ready player one and David and Goliath, you know, if you're Mm -hmm. a little kid, nobody expects you to be able to take down a giant or a corporation. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And so it's, it's definitely another example of somebody figuring out who they are through going through a very difficult kind of trial experience. And I think Cinderella does the same thing in the Cinderella stories because she is um, overcoming the class system, right? Yes. Uh, you could never become a princess. And so here she is with, you know, her stones and her sling, right? Um, saying, no, I am good enough, right? I can rise to the occasion. I just need some assistance to be able to do that. Um, well, to prove myself. Exactly. And I mean, there's... We're not going to go into, I don't think, we're going to go in too much today to the gender aspect of it, um, you know, which is that in order to find out your, your true self, you need to find the right man, right? Right, right. Um, 
but but that aside looking at gender from the perspective of um you know a fairy godmother is magical but she's also a female figure Mm -hmm. um and truthfully even though the class system Mm -hmm. uh is oppressing cinderella it's it's an interesting commentary that a woman helps her find her own confidence at the same time that other women have kind of robbed her of her confidence. Exactly. Um, exactly. So, and I know patriarchy is on top of all of that. I am not neglecting patriarchy, but no, no, just no. pointing that out. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, I can attest that you are not. Um, <laughs> um, but no, I mean, it, it really is the idea that um, when you think about it, it we, we, you know, uh, Bettelheim can look at it and say it's family, it's siblings, you know, yes. in some way. But right. in reality, the version of Cinderella that we know is the stepmother and the stepsisters who um, are not behaving like family at all. Right. They're supposed to be family. They're supposed to mean security and support and, right. and identity and acceptance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they are um, they're deviating from that in a big way. And they want, to, they want what they want for themselves. Right. right? They're, they're not being altruistic at all. And, and how they're approaching um, this. Uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, none of the other children or parents who accompanied them were being altruistic either. No. It was all selfishness about, you know, I want this for me and I want, want, want. And so you're not giving the keys to the kingdom to someone who will take care of other people, you know. Right. Uh, and, and every person, Cinderella, Joseph, um, Brave, you know, um, Merida and Brave. Merida, yeah. Uh, and Brave. Um, Charlie and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, right? And the way they're treated and, 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 and uh, pushed around by other people um, have sort of a, a, an axe to grind, right? But mm-hmm. they don't. Um, do you know what I mean? We see this benevolence, benevolence that was shown to them, in turn, they show to others. I agree with you, and I also think that Brave is a particularly interesting version of that because Merida does do something really cool first. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so and, what, tell us. I mean, some people might not have watched Brave as much or not seen it for a while. So, mm-hmm. what about like a tiny synopsis on that one? Sure. So, um, in you know, in the classic Cinderella story, right? Cinderella mm-hmm. doesn't do anything mean to her stepsisters. Mm-hmm. It's not like she did something awful and then ever since then they've been really mean to her, (laughs) you know, but in Brave, um, you know, it's Scottish clans and the king's first born is a girl, Merida, Mm -hmm. and you see her growing up with two parents who love the heck out of her, you know, Mm -hmm. and are just really great. But the mother is trying to model for her what it's like to be a queen. You know, it's very gender specific. Mm-hmm. You know, you're supposed to behave a specific way. You have to wear these confining dresses. You have to have your hair up. You can't go out. She likes to ride around on her horse shooting arrows. And that's right. not princess-like, right? <laughs> right, right. So there's this uh, recognition that at some point she's not going to be able to do that anymore because she's going to have to get married and mm-hmm. get ready to be the queen, right? Um, and mm-hmm. take care of the clan. So um, what's interesting about it is that she does something selfish, before she learns the power of benevolence. Mm-hmm. Um, even though she's had, you know, a, a somewhat restrictive, but a very supportive, good childhood, right? Mm-hmm. With available right. parents. Um, you know, she goes to a witch and she says, please change my mother. 
so that she won't make me get married. <laughs> and that's all she wants is for her to change. Right. Right. And so, um, anyway, the mother ends up getting changed into a hideous, uh, frightening bear. Right. Um, and then they together have to go through the journey of figuring out how to reverse the spell in time. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course the key to that is in a legend. Right. Right. So it's kind of like a fairy tale within a fairy tale, mm-hmm. uh, which points out, you know, and, and her mother, um, Eleanor, points out several times in the story that legends have lessons in them. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not just stories that are told for entertainment. And in this mm-hmm. legend, uh, the last time that the witch was asked to do this was for selfish reasons. A prince mm-hmm. had asked uh, for, I think, a bunch of strength. And so he was turned into a bear. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the same bear that Merida's father has been trying to defeat. Right. His entire life. So it all it's like a story within a story. And in the process of doing something really selfish because she doesn't like the way that she fits into um, her societal structure, Merida ends up realizing, oh my gosh, I love my mother. That is ultimately something that makes, um, that holds more weight and that I need to address first before I start thinking about, you know, what kind of husband I want. And if I even want to be a part of this, you know, I need to acknowledge that my mother loves me and that I love my mother and that we need to figure out how to communicate with each other. Um, so I'll stop talking here in just a second, but one of the things I really liked about (laughs) it is that when they try and when they finally figure out, you know, that they need to, um, essentially both admit that they did something wrong to Mm -hmm. each other. Right. Um, and get over their pride. Uh, when Merida's mother becomes human again, Merida says, oh my gosh, you've changed because she's got this gray streak in her hair. And Merida's mother says something like, we both have. And that was the key. Right. Um, And I think that's a little bit different than certainly the classic Cinderella story because in that story, um, the focus is on the change in Cinderella. Right. And of course the prince has to do some changing too right because he realizes that he's in love with someone who's not noble Mm -hmm. and has to decide that he still loves her but the focus is more on cinderella and what i liked about brave among many things was the fact that the focus was on the relationship between the mother and the daughter both right and i think you know when chapman directed you know co-wrote this and directed this brenda chapman you know the brave film you know she says she was relaying that relating her own relationship to her, her daughter, right? This mother daughter mm-hmm. relationship, which you clearly, you know, um, articulated that, that's, that's evident in the story. But I think that also goes back to Betelheim's, you know, concept of the parent child struggle too. Yes. Right. The yeah. idea of, of the child wrestling with the parent. So, you know, what parent doesn't see their, I mean, what child doesn't see their parent at some point as an overbearing ogre bear, right. You know, sort of growling all the time at them and exactly or as a barrier to what they want to do Mm -hmm. exactly yeah Yeah. so i think that that's that's very evident um you know in the story and i and i think that's a great um you know that idea of um cinderella Mm -hmm. and what we're doing there so there's there's a lot of key elements in these stories right and that they are they keep being transferred in the retelling like Chapman doesn't say why well, based this on Cinderella, you know, but right. we can see those elements in there because every generation gets influenced by some version of that story. Um, 
I noted that Ready Player One and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory almost were these parallels. You know, there was this uh, epiphany, you know, in a conversation one day with my son. And I'm like, wait, do you, do you realize that this is almost the same retelling of this story? And mm-hmm. so authors and ourselves, we're all influenced by the retelling of these stories that we hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, and we, re, we rework them, we retell them, we work on them in a different way. Um, but I, I think that um, being conscious, conscious of that um, sort of underlying thread yes. that's present in a lot of these stories, be they science fiction like Ready Player One, um, fantasy sort of like Brave, or even, you know, um, fantastical like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I think that those, those things are absolutely there. And we... Um, and we then begin to connect those to our own realities um, in a, a conscious or even a non-conscious manner. Absolutely. I mean, Bettelheim argues that um, children need to remain unconscious of the reasons why fairy tales appeal to them. Mm-hmm. Because they're not mature enough to face some of the very real emotions mm-hmm. um, that they're dealing with. I think in some cases that's still true of adults, but I would also argue that it's possible for adults to enjoy fairy tales for the same reasons they did when they were children, but also be conscious of the fact that, hey, this is appealing to my emotions about how I feel about my parents or about my children or about my role in society or my, you know, lack of respect at my job, you know, whatever it is, I think adults are able to, because they have been exposed to those Mm -hmm. stories. And if they're aware, like you said, of that continuing thread, like, oh, this is another Cinderella story. This is Mm -hmm. another story about somebody wanting to figure out who they really are. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you can recognize that, I think as an adult, that those stories are still appealing to you, that might actually help you recognize like, hey, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm having a searching process right now, you know, Um, maybe there's part of my identity that doesn't quite feel clicked in place. Yeah, and everybody wants to believe that they're the Cinderella, right? Of course. Nobody wants to be the corporation from Ready Player One. Nobody wants to be (laughs) the Mr. Smith from the matrix, right? Nobody wants to be the stepmother or the stepsister or the villain in any of these tales. Mm -hmm. But I think there's this, this uh, emotional intelligence and this growth that has to happen where we have to ask ourselves in our relationships at what times have we taken on maybe all Mm. of these roles, which we do, Mm -hmm. which we do, but you're right. I think we very rarely take the time to recognize and admit to ourselves that we do. Right. Because at different times in our lives, we could be acting the role of somebody's stepmother, even if we're not a stepmother, right? We could be, we could be standing in the way of somebody recognizing something larger about themselves. Right, right. Or when are you expected to be the fairy godmother, you know, and give guidance yes. and direction right. um, and make something happen for someone, right? Because right. it's that moment in life when it's, you, you're there to turn their pumpkins into chariots and the Mm-hmm. mice the mice that are chewing the, the fabric <laughs> of the reality away right you're there to transform them into something that helps them to move forward to move beyond wherever their current circumstances are and i think that um we all want to be the heroes of all, our own stories and, and you and i you know we look at political systems right every great leader believes that they are right you know every great leader on 
both sides of a conflict believe that what they are doing is in the best interest of the people that they believe they're serving, right? They want to be the hero. I think, I think you're right. I think people do want to be the hero. I think the really great leaders do recognize on some level that they may not be completely right, Mm -hmm. but they've done their darndest Mm -hmm. to, to learn enough and to talk to enough people that they think like in that moment, this is the most right thing to do. I'm, I'm thinking this is a little bit of a tangent, so I apologize, but I'm teaching a class right now in which we end up talking about Abraham Lincoln and his leadership qualities. Mm -hmm. And he's somebody who really stands out to me as an example of that too. Um, You know, not to lionize him or anything, which I know plenty of people have done, but I'm just saying, uh, I think he's one of those people who certainly went from rags to riches and uh, I think recognized along the way that he was definitely not perfect and that he was not always going to be regarded as a hero. Right. Yeah. And he was at his best when he was the vampire hunter. So (laughs) I still haven't haven't indulged in that or in, uh, or in the Jane Austen zombie movies. (laughs) I I have. They're great. That's Um, on my list. (laughs) They'll completely alter a whole generation of people eventually. But you know, in in all of these stories, it's the relationships, right? I mean, they're transferable. Politics change, the culture changes, the ideologies change, right? Yes. But, but the relationships remain the same. And, and a great example of that this week, I was talking with my son. He had to read um, the, the Lion and the Mouse. Mm-hmm. Um, and for most people, I think you're familiar with, you know, the Lion and the Mouse and this whole idea that um, the lion inadvertently helps the mouse and the mouse says, I will help you someday, right? And the lion's mm-hmm. like, yeah, whatever. What could, <laughs> what, could, what could some little guy like you you're do? You're a tiny mouse. Tiny mouse. <laughs> and, then, and then he gets, finds himself ensnared in a, in a, in a trap. Um, a cage, a net, whatever version of the story you want to look at. Um, And the mouse hears him in distress, comes, gnaws through uh, what is um, holding him and releases him, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's just interesting to look at that story and read that there were so many different versions of that story in Mm. various cultures about you know, the, the, the dominant, the biggest and the smallest, right? Yes. And how yeah. there was this connection where the biggest, of course, helped the smallest because that's what they do, but right. never considering that the smallest would serve any purpose. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was interesting just even that it, it was my son who said, well, it's about the relationship, right? It's about this relationship that they're having. Um, and he says, so you never look down on someone just because you think they're um, weaker than you, smaller than you, you know, I mean, less than you, because yes. someday, someday that person might be able to help you. And um, when you think of it, um, it doesn't have to be this way, but mm-hmm. when you think of it in terms of story threads mm-hmm. that are continuous, like the Cinderella story, right. and you think of it as, okay, well, I know this person as my, you know, my friend or my colleague, or mm-hmm. this is the person who I talk to whenever I go to the grocery store, right? Mm-hmm. If you realize that stories are ongoing and that you are playing a role for them and they're playing a role for you that could change, right? Mm-hmm. So like you might be the stepmother right now, right? but someday you might be Cinderella or you might be the footman right. <laughs> and someday right. you might be the prince, right? That's right. Um, and recognizing that relationships are ongoing and that they do change over time and that people are capable of change. I think that's one of um, the most fundamental 
aspects of, of this thread that we're talking about is that no matter how somebody looks from the outside or the role that you're used to seeing them in, right. it could very well be that they have a very real part of their identity that is mm-hmm. going to be realized in relationship with you or mm-hmm. with other people that you are not expecting. Right. And, and that the person someone was in times past is not the person they are today, good or bad. Right. You know, and that's a tough tough thing for us as humans i've always felt that you know we always see people for who they've been right yes and nobody um except for maybe the divine sees us for who we will be you know Mm -hmm. or parents right parents see children for who they will be someday i think in that sense i think they definitely do but i mean they're still human and so they they project things on their children that they want to see but their children don't necessarily want you know and that goes back to um, the relationship in brave too, right between right. the mother and the daughter. And you know, what's interesting to me is that if you're open to the fact that the people that you're in relationship may change, right. Uh, you are there for opening yourself up to the fact that you are capable of change because mm-hmm. the mother in that story, there's hints of it in the way that they interact, mm-hmm. but you don't think the mother has any angst. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Until she becomes a bear. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) And her whole world is turned upside down. And then in their interactions and their, you know, their um, cooperation to try and reverse the spell, you find out that, you know what, the mother needed to change, too. She was actually feeling oppressed by the cultural structure that she was living in, too. Right. Um, And the same can be said for many of the retellings of Cinderella, where, mm -hmm. you know, the stepmother and the stepsisters change. Mm-hmm. at the end too um, and they become different persons than who they were previously mm-hmm. um, and why that is who knows but in these retellings I think there again there's a common thread that's there um, I, 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 I almost bet we're going to come back to the Cinderella trope as a trope itself right um, sure. and some of our future um, conversations um, but it, it really is about this story is going to be retold time and time again um, in different versions and different variations with different characters taking on different roles. But that whole thread of that journey is tied up into it. Um, and someone transitioning from being less than what they were to having riches in some way, um, be it in character or friends or family or love or whatever it might be. In Absolutely. The mm-hmm. And it may be an expected type of riches or it could be that they set out looking for a particular type of riches and realize that what they really want is something else. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening to episode two of Retelling. This episode referenced the following resources. Beyond Lies the Wub by Philip K. Dick. Golden Rule of World Building by Simon Proventure. Building a Sci-Fi Future that Matters by Fran Wilde from Tor.com. Subcreation or Smuggled Theology. Tolkien Contra Lewis on Christian Fantasy by David Downing. On Fantasy by J.R.R. Tolkien, Claire Bradshaw's The Ultimate Guide to World Building. Please like, subscribe, and share with friends. Leave us comments with your insights on the episode. We also love to read suggestions for future episodes. Until next time, keep retelling.